well since I haven't preached in a couple of weeks. Uh, I've had a lot of time to read and a lot of time to uh, listen and a lot of time to engage in some spiritual introspection, which is always a good thing. And I feel like as a result of that, I need to make a little confession this morning. And that confession is simply this. I love country music. I can't prove this, but based on my research and 17 years of experience, I'm, I'm uh, maybe thinking that George Jones was the unnamed 13th apostle. Amen? And, and I just, uh, it's important to distinguish and defend that country music is not the same as bluegrass music, which is an affront to the character of God, all right? And so I just want to make that distinction this morning between the two of those. And so if you like country music and you listen to country music, then maybe you're familiar. A couple years ago, a song came out, and the title of it causes all kinds of theological conundrums, all right? And so the title of that song is a young artist, a guy named Thomas Rhett. And the title of that song was, If I Could Have a Beer with Jesus. Now... On hearing the title of that song, some of you are waving the blasphemy flag, like that's terrible. And some of you secretly are getting emotional because you're like, that's my favorite hymn, right? <laughs> and so it causes all kinds of uh, dis inside of us. And so the thesis of the song is, is basically this. It's, um, if you could sit down and have a conversation with Jesus face to face, what would you ask him? And the question uh, for us this morning, based on that silly song title, is if you were sitting across from uh, Jesus at a restaurant sharing a, a root beer, right, because Jesus is Baptist, and so he didn't, anyway. So uh, what, what would you ask him? And some of you would ask uh, philosophical questions like, hey, why is there so much pain and suffering in the world? Some of you would have questions about eternity. What's it really like? And, and you know, the people that I've loved have gone there. And can, do they see? You know, all these kind of uh, questions. Some of you uh, would have questions about why. Uh, why did something happen that you prayed would not happen? And so if you could sit across from Jesus and have a face-to-face -face conversation, and what about this? What if you could say, hey, Jesus, um, I know you're the great high priest, 1 Timothy 2, 5, and so uh, I'm just going to ask you to pray for me, and you can pray about anything that you want to pray on my behalf. Now, if you could ask Jesus that, just pray for you, and whatever you want to pray about, just feel free to, to pray for that on my behalf. What do you think Jesus would pray on your behalf? Now, here's the cool thing this morning. Probably one of the things he might pray is we find in John chapter 17. Let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn there this morning for a message titled, Jesus' Prayer for Missionaries. And, and hearing that title, you're like, hey, it's not Missions Week, and, and I'm not a missionary, and I didn't go to seminary, and so I don't know if that applies to me this morning. But listen, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, uh, you're a missionary, and, and missions is not the call to a, a small chosen few. Missions is the assignment given to everyone who names the name of Jesus Christ. And so you've heard us say this on many occasions. Uh, you're a missionary cleverly disguised as an engineer. Uh, you're a missionary cleverly disguised as an educator. You're a missionary cleverly disguised as a stay-at-home parent or a nurse or an assembly line worker, all those things. And so the reality is this is Jesus' prayer on behalf of every single follower uh, of Jesus Christ. And so here we're eavesdropping and Jesus is praying on our behalf. And so if you ever wonder, like, what would Jesus pray for me if he were praying on my behalf? John chapter 17 is actual prayer recorded of Jesus praying on our behalf. And this is what he prays for. All right. So John chapter 17. We're going to look this morning at verse uh, 13 uh, down through verse 23 this morning. So John chapter 17 beginning in verse 13. But now... I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, 
that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. And so he's praying to the Father. This is a recorded prayer. Uh, verse 14, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you've sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself, that they may also be sanctified by the truth. In verse 20, I do not pray for these alone, talking about his immediate disciples, but also for those who will believe me in, uh, through their word, that they may all be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Now, this is an incredible uh, passage of Scripture. Again, we're kind of eavesdropping on, on a prayer that Jesus is praying. Not, not just a general prayer like, Lord, help me and Lord, fix this and those kind of things. It's not just a general prayer to the Father. He's actually praying on our behalf. He's actually praying on our behalf, and so some uh, commentators have, have uh, coined this little section of Scripture. They've called it uh, the real Lord's Prayer. In other words, when Jesus prayed, this is what he prayed, and so some have uh, coined it that. Uh, the technical term from a theological perspective is this passage of Scripture, John chapter 17, is what's known as Jesus' high priestly prayer and it's an incredible prayer because most of the time when we study the scriptures and we think about prayer uh, we think of prayers going in this direction right that we're offering up prayers to God communing with God petitioning God confessing to God all those things but the incredible thing about John 17 is this is heaven's prayer on our behalf and so this is a study of prayer not from earth to heaven but from heaven to earth and this is what Jesus is praying for on your behalf that when we have a chance to listen on, on his intercession on our behalf, this is what he prays. And so that's why we use a, a missions bumper video this because it's a prayer for uh, missionaries. And so it's a call to prayer uh, this morning. And so sometimes when we teach a series on prayer, we talk about prayer. Sometimes it's how to grow in your prayer life and how to avoid obstacles and how not to get in a rut and all those things. And those things are needed and necessary and helpful. But this morning, it's more of a challenge of a call to prayer. That these are the things that you and I should be praying about. While we're praying for all these things, these are the things that we should be praying for because these are the things that Jesus prayed on our behalf. Now, I'm not the smartest guy in the room, all right? I am the most handsome, but I am not the smartest, all right? But here's what even I can conclude. That if this is on the heart of Jesus when he prays for me, then this is something that should be on my heart when I'm praying to him. And so as you think about this, this is kind of a, a call to prayer, and this is what Jesus is praying on our uh, behalf. And so uh, when Jesus uh, looks up this uh, prayer, and we see this in uh, John chapter 17, there's, there's so much mystery about God's will, is there not? Is it God's will to do this or do that, all these kind of things? There's a lot of poor teaching on that, a lot of misunderstanding. But here's the cool thing about this passage. I don't have to wonder if these things that we're going to teach this morning are the will of God for my life. Because here's why. If Jesus is praying for them on my behalf, I'm pretty sure that Jesus was never outside the will of God in his prayer life. And so uh, Jesus' earthly time is 
beginning to wind up here in uh, John chapter 17. And so here's how this passage kind of breaks apart. Jesus, uh, in verses 1 through 5, kind of prays for himself. Now, if you're here and sometimes you feel guilty about praying for yourself, I've heard that dozens and dozens of times as a pastor. I have no problem praying for missionaries and praying for other people and praying that God would you know, intervene in this situation. But I just feel guilty about praying for myself sometimes. Listen, Jesus himself prayed for himself. So if you experience that, that's false guilt, all right? And so in verses 1 through 5, Jesus is praying for himself. In verses 6 through 19, he's praying for his immediate disciples, but those principles would apply to all who want to be his disciple. And then in verses 20 through 23, he's uh, praying for everyone who will follow after and lay hold of the message the disciples are preaching. And so that certainly is us, all right? And so that's kind of how this uh, passage breaks apart here in John chapter 17. And when we look at that, basically there's two things that Jesus is praying on our behalf. And so these are two things we should be praying on behalf of ourselves, all right? Two things in this passage uh, this morning that should be on our heart for the simple reason that it's on his heart according to John chapter 17. So when you're praying, here's the first thing. Number one, pray that your heart would be guarded from worldly affections. Pray that your heart would be guarded from worldly uh, affections. Now, if you ever want to have a fun time in Jesus' name, uh, just gather together a whole bunch of Christians from all different kind of backgrounds, all different kind of denominations, all different kind of theological leanings, and just throw out this question for a fun and lighthearted uh, icebreaker. Just throw out this question in a room like that and just say, hey, what is worldliness? And I promise you, you're going to get a long list of answers. And just to keep the conversation going for a little more fun, just saying, how do you avoid worldliness, right? And so there's all kinds of uh, thoughts on that. Uh, but here's the deal, if we're honest. Most of the time, most of our efforts to avoid worldliness, you know what we end up being? Weird. Can I get an amen? Like you sometimes you just think people like, I just don't want to be worldly. You're like, hey, listen, don't worry about it because you're just weird. And I don't care what your mom told you, weird is not attractive, all right? And so no one's looking at you who doesn't know Christ and going, look at that weird bird. I want what they have, right? No one's doing that. Write that down. And so most of the time in the, in the battle for, for holiness and guarding ourselves from the world, we just end up uh, being weird. But, but here's the deal. We cannot deny the fact that when we eavesdrop on a prayer that Jesus is praying on our behalf, that one of the primary things he prays for is, Father, let them avoid the world because just like I'm in the world, I'm not of the world, and they shouldn't be either. And so look what he says again, verses 14 through 16. I've given them your word. And the world has hated them because they're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. I don't pray you should take them out of the world, but you should keep them from the evil one. They're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. So he says that twice um, for emphasis. And so now, now here's the deal. Uh, so many times, like, like it's clear in the Bible, is it not? Like is it not clear here? And, and he's dropping on a prayer of Jesus on our behalf. He says, hey, you're in the world, and I don't want to pull you out of the world, but I don't want you to be of the world. Now raise your hand if you've ever heard preaching or teaching on worldliness. Would you just raise your hand? You've heard that at some point in time. Yeah, so, so we are familiar with that phrase. Here's what we're not familiar with. What does it even mean, right? And for some of you, you've heard that taught before, and so for some of you, specific habits or activities come to mind. Do they not? Oh, worldliness, that's, you know, click, 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 these kind of things, right? And so, uh, so when we think about that sometimes, we're not exactly uh, sure what that means when the Bible talks about worldliness. And we've heard teaching, we don't know if it's right. And so let me just tell you what worldliness is. If you're listening, say amen. Worldliness 
is valuing things that have no eternal value in the economy of God. It's letting your heart be captured by what captures culture instead of what honor and exalts God. Worldliness is a godless value system that opposes and mocks the things that God values. It's, a, it's what a godless culture adores. It's the value shared by a godless culture. That's what worldliness is. Let me help you kind of understand this because if you're not careful, your mind just drifts to certain activities and habits and all these kind of things. So let me just help you understand by some illustration here. A godless culture values greed and accumulation. But God values generosity. A godless culture values unbridled sexuality. God values purity and monogamy. A godless culture values selfish gain at all costs. God values self-sacrificing love at all costs. A godless culture values exploiting the poor for personal profit and payday loans and all those kind of things. God values protecting the poor as those made in the image of God. A godless culture values only the strong survive, right? Dog eat dog. Listen, God values mercy to the weak and justice for those experiencing injustice. A godless culture values fame at all costs. God values humility. A godless culture values self-promotion, but the gospel is a call to self-denial. You get the idea? That's the heart of worldliness. It's not about habits and places I go and things I do. That may be the overflow of my heart uh, hungering for holiness. But at the deal, the, uh, the heart affection is captured by things that have no value in the economy of God. That's what uh, worldliness is. Now, if you're not careful, you don't understand that. You know what? You, you, you'll, just, you'll just say, we shouldn't be of the world. You'll, just, you'll preach to other people and you'll preach at your kids and you, for your own life. And you'll just say, just avoid these things and avoid these habits and avoid these places. Because that's worldliness. Listen, and if that's all you do and you don't reorient the affections of a person's heart for Jesus. Listen, then the pinnacle of all your efforts is you'll produce little Pharisees. You'll produce moral children and grandchildren and people who have no heart for God. Worldliness is not about... Uh, Habits, it's about heart affections. Let me say this. Worldliness is about heart affections, not habits. Worldliness is about heart affections, not habits. Say that with me one time. Worldliness is about heart affections, not habits. One more time with Pentecostal power. Worldliness is about heart affections, not habits. And if my heart hungers for holiness, will that show up in a change of habit? Yes. But that's not the starting point. That's the overflow of a heart that hungers for holiness. It's not the entry point into holiness. And ungodly actions are rooted in heart affections. Where a heart's been deceived into thinking that somehow, something other than Jesus will satisfy what my heart longs for. And so Jesus says here, he says, listen. I've given you your word that the world hate them because they're not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. I don't pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them uh, from the evil ones. So, so, so here's what Jesus is praying. He said, hey, listen, you're, you're missionaries. This is what I want for you. I, I, don't, I don't want you to, uh, to pull out. Of, I, I want you to engage. I want you to be salt and light. I want you to be you know, all those things we talk about in the Sermon on the Mountain. So, so this is what I want for you, but I, but I don't want you to be stained by the world. And, and as you're rubbing shoulders with the world around you, don't let its values creep into your heart, which is so uh, easy to do. And so, so how does it, what does it look like when we're, when we're in the world, but we're not of the world? And so let me just tell you some, some ways we get it wrong. 
all right? That when it comes to the world, here's some ways we get it wrong based on what Jesus is teaching and praying for on our behalf as his missionaries. Uh, three ways, and these all start with uh, the same letters, so I'm super proud of them. Write them down, all right? Number one, uh, we retreat. If the goal of God upon saving us was for us to retreat from the godless culture, that as soon as he saved us, he'd call us home. He'd just say, hey, now that, now that my righteousness is in you, let's just get you out of there so you don't get stained with the world. Let's just, I'm so afraid that as you rub shoulders of the world that their, their values are going to creep into your heart, so let's just get you out of there, right? And sometimes we retreat, but we look at Jesus' life, it's clear. He didn't isolate himself from worldly people. He engaged them. Uh, we homeschool some of our kids, and so we see a lot of that mentality. Uh, and, and here's the reality. Listen, it's getting easier and easier to do this. If you work really hard, you can only patronize Christian businesses, and you can put your kids in Christian schools, and they can play in Christian sports leagues, and now they can even go to Christian Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts. And listen, I, I'm not saying you shouldn't be discerning. I'm not saying you throw your kids out of the wolves. I'm not preaching or teaching any of those things. But be careful in your efforts to be discerning and discipling our children or your grandchildren. Be careful that you don't cross the line into total retreat from all the world and just kind of hunker down. So we, we love Christ and, and we're going to remain pure. We're just going to retreat from everyone else. Jesus said, no, 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 you're in the world and I don't want you to pull out of there. Salt has to get out of the salt shaker to have any effect. Jesus' philosophy was this in Luke 5, 31. It's not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. What good is a doctor who never visits sick people? Can you imagine calling your doctor and saying, hey, I want to come in. I feel terrible. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Don't come in here, right? That's a Christian who totally retreats from the world. And we have the cure for sin in the gospel, but we're hiding it out of fear. So how do we get it wrong? We retreat Secondly, we resent. Now, if you're listening, say amen. I want to say something very clearly this morning. And I'm going to slow down, but I'm going to keep sweating, all right? You're not making a single bit of gospel kingdom difference scolding people behind a computer screen. And what you've done is you've gotten lazy. And you've settled for making a point when Christ has called you to make a difference. I've been doing this 17 years. So you do the math. I started off when I was four. And in 17 years of full-time ministry, I've never met a person who fell in love with Jesus because a Christian scolded them about their morality. Have you? Not one time, but yet I see it happening all the time. And listen... You can be sinfully angry at a godless culture, or you can be burdened for it on behalf of Jesus, but you cannot be both at the same time. And so we get it wrong when we retreat, we get it wrong when we resent, and lastly, we get it wrong when we resemble. And it's our distinctiveness, not our similarity that makes our lives uh, attractive. What do you mean? Like, like we should, like the way we dress and the place we don't go and all that. No, 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 listen. Listen, let me tell you what's distinctive about those who love Christ. is that we love people who, who despise us. Is that we pray for those who persecute us. Is that we serve those who don't deserve our service. And so praying for people who persecute, all those kinds of things. Loving people sacrificially as opposed to using them. That's what's attractive in the world. Let me show you a God's beauty list that's been attractive in every culture and every age. The fruit of the Spirit is love, 
and joy and peace and forbearance and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Let me just say this, in a dog-eat-dog, cruel world, terribly divided, those things in every age, in every culture, in every season will always be beautiful in the eyes of a fallen and broken world. And so it's not about wearing jean skirts and, and, and no makeup and avoiding movies and, and card games, all that, like, like that, 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 just, that, that we're distinct. And so people see that. Listen, those things, apart from deep love for God and for people, are, aren't holy. They're just weird. I read a pastor this week. He said, um, he said I, I quote, he said, my parents grew up in an area when Christians thought that uh, you were worldly if you did any of, any of the filthy five is what they called them. Filthy five. Smoking, drinking, dancing, going to movies, and playing cards. If you avoided the filthy five, you were fine with God. Is that not a great, the filthy five? That's the title of our next series. Invite all your friends. It's going to be awesome, right? Like we're going to put billboards, come to Liberty Heights, we're filthy, right? And so we can't retreat, and we dare not resent, and Christ here is praying on our behalf that we not resemble. And so let me offer some balance to this and some biblical wisdom. Paul did warn in 1 Corinthians 53 about how we engage with the world around us and the godless culture around us. Paul did say this, let me give some balance to this. This discussion here this morning, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, 33 says this, do not be deceived, bad company corrupts good character. Now, so, so how do you do this? 1 Corinthians 15, 33, do not be deceived, bad company corrupts good character. Every parent should memorize that and call their kids to that, right? Do not be deceived. Why does it say do not be deceived? Because you know how we're deceived? Is we think, I can hang around these people and it won't change me at all. You're deceived. Do not be deceived, bad company, company corrupts good character. So you got that on one side of the scripture, but then Jesus over here is saying, hey, listen, don't withdraw from the world. Don't be of it, uh, but don't withdraw from it. And then Paul's over here saying, hey, bad company corrupts good So which is it, right? Like how do you manage that tension? How do you be a missionary to people that need Christ, but then not let their godless values creep into your heart when good uh, character is corrupted? By, like how does that all work, right? Well, listen, the answer's in the text. The answer's always in the text. Here's how that works. Look at verse 17 in chapter 17. Verse 17 says, says this, Sanctify them. Set them apart for your use, Lord. While they're in the world, but not of the world, I don't want them to retreat from the world. While they're in the world, being missionaries, building bridges, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Do you see what he's saying here? He's saying, listen, I'm praying on your behalf. And what I'm praying for is that you would uh, be salt light in the world, because uh, I don't want you to retreat from the world, but you're not of the world. And so as you uh, rub shoulders with these people, the thing that guards your heart and your mind is the word of truth. Now, if you're listening, say amen. Here's what he's saying. That as you engage as a missionary in a godless culture, that if you don't want to be that person where bad company has corrupted good character, then listen, then the thing you do is you saturate your heart and your mind with his truth because his truth is what sanctifies us. You know what that means? That if you're not reading the word of God, if you're not studying the word of God, if you're not memorizing the word of God, if you're not meditating on the word of God, then you don't have a snowball's chance in purgatory to make a difference. 
and not let the world stain you. So I didn't think purgatory is true. It is this morning. I'm preaching, all right? You pastor your church, you can teach whatever you want. I haven't preached in a couple weeks. I'm fired up, right? Woo! Get some of that, devil! (laughs) I don't know what happened there. I don't know what happened. So... There's my hanky. So here's what this means. You guys get yourselves under control, all right? Here's what this means. He said, hey, listen, I'm going to leave you in the world. But I don't want you to be of the world. And so the thing I'm going to give you to sanctify you or set you apart is this. He said, your word is truth, Lord. Sanctify them by your truth. Here's how you guard your heart and your mind so that bad company doesn't corrupt good character as your salt and light in a world that needs us. That's what that looks like. That's what that looks like. Now, here's the problem. Here's the secret that Satan doesn't want to let out. We think, oh, like being of the world's fun. That's where all the fun's at, right? What do we joke all the time and go, hey, if, if, if sin's not fun, you're doing it wrong, right? Like we, we say all the time, we joke about it. So, so, so. Holiness doesn't sound like fun, right? Worldliness sounds like fun. Look at verse 13. And verse 13 says, but now I come to you and these things I speak into the world. Here it is, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. You know what he's saying? He's saying, hey, listen, if you'll set yourself apart for my use, that holiness is not about avoiding fun. Listen, holiness is the path to true joy. And he said, Here, here's the secret, because you think, oh, holiness, I'm just going to grit my teeth and not be stained by the world. And, and when I get to heaven, there'll be rejoicing. He says, no, here's what I'm praying on your behalf, that as you use them and sanctify them and set them apart, then uh, that's where they'll find true joy. Not in what the world offers, because sin is fun, but the consequences are disastrous. He said, no, this is the path to true joy. The Bible says in Psalms that, Lord, in your presence, Lord, there is fullness of joy. And I don't know about you, but we're living in a world world that is devoid of gospel-centered, Christ-exalting joy for all the nations. That's what we need. And so number one, pray that your heart will be guarded from worldly affections, that as you minister to the culture, that the culture's values don't creep into your heart. Here's the second thing he prays on our behalf, and you should be praying on your own behalf according to this passage. The second thing is this, pray that selfishness would not hinder our mission. Turn to the person next to you and just tell them to their face, you're selfish. Right? So if you had your teeth clenched. You know why the person next to you is selfish? Because they're a sinner. You know what? And people are like, I don't think people are, you know when people come to me, I don't think people are selfish. You know what I, you know what I think automatically? Oh, you don't have any kids. Like, listen, I've gotten older, and so now, you know, I've got here, I was a young pastor, I don't, I'm like I'm a middle-aged pastor now, right? And so, uh, so some of our younger staff, they're having, like, little, little kids in there. I'm like, I love it. And so they come in, they're scared to death of me. I don't know why, I think it's because I sweat. And so I love, like, they, they come, like it's, it's a blast. You know what else I like? I like giving them back at the end, amen? Right? Because I know what else goes on with that fun. It's like in the middle of the night and you're sleeping, like, they're like, hello, I don't care if you're asleep. I'm hungry, I'm scared, you know, whatever, because they're sad. They don't care what your needs are. 
That's the condition of every person born of flesh. And so why should we pray that selfishness would not hinder our mission in the world? Because that's what Jesus prayed on our behalf. Look at verses 20 and 23 again. You go, so I don't see selfishness in there. You will in just a minute, right? Uh, chapter 17, verse 20 through 23. I do not pray for these alone. So he's praying for his immediate disciples in verses 6 through 19. And uh, if you're a disciple, th that would apply over to you. Then he says specifically, everyone who comes after my disciples, who wants to be my follower, I'm praying for them right now. So this is absolutely for us. Like this isn't secondary application. This is direct, all right? So verse 20, I do not pray for these alone, my immediate disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So that's us if you're a follower of Christ. And here's what he's praying. That they may all be one. As you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me, I've given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. Do you see that kind of theme here, what he's praying for? Verse 23, I and them, you and me, that they may be, be perfect in one. Why? That the world may know that you've sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Now, so you know what he's praying for? Here's what he's praying for. He's for unity in the body of Christ. You know why? Because what he's praying for, he says, hey, listen, disunity um, hinders our gospel witness. That's what he's saying. He's saying, Lord, I'm praying that they're one, not just so it's easy, not just so they get along, not just, you know, because I don't like drama. What he's saying is, I pray that they may be one, unified, so that, cause and effect, so that the world may know that you sent me. You see what he's saying? Disunity discredits our witness in the world. Raise your hand if you've ever been a part of a church and experienced disunity. Just raise your hand up. Like most people, listen, we all have, right? And what Jesus is praying, he says, I don't want that to happen. Not, not because I want drama, you know, like drama. He's saying, I don't want that to happen because it distracts from the whole reason I came. That the world looks at and goes, oh, there's those people who love Jesus and love each other. Looks like to me, they hate each other. And so he says, I'm praying that you're one so that the world may be convinced that you have sent me. Now, let me tell you some false markers of unity in a church. False markers of unity. Number one is uniformity. Like we just get everybody to agree to the same dress code. And everybody, like, these are the songs, everybody just agrees, this is the kind of songs we should sing. And everybody just agrees, this is the Bible translation we read out of. And this is how the order of worship goes. If everybody would agree to all that, then we would have unity. Let me just tell you something. I've been around those churches where everything is real spelled out, real clear. This is what's right, this is what's wrong. Everybody agree, amen. Those are some of the most disunified, contentious churches I've ever been on. Those are some of the churches I've met, some of the meanest Christians I've ever met. So uniformity doesn't lead to uh, unity. And here's the second word. And I can't say this word, but I wrote it down. <laughs> Unanimity. Did I say that right? You're lying. I don't know if I said that right. Here's what unanimity is in a church that's, that's a false marker of unity. It's there's agreement on every non-essential doctrine. Like you can't come to our church unless you hold the same view we hold in the second coming. You can't come to our church unless you agree that the timing of the Lord's return, you know, looks all that, that kind of stuff. So let me just kind of give you three quick categories of, of doctrine to help you understand. Not every doctrinal issue is an issue worth dividing the church over. Sometimes there are. Let me just give you three categories really quickly here. Uh, number one, there are essential truths. And they're essential because they're necessary for the gospel to be true. 
uh, the inspiration authority of Scripture, the Trinity, the deity of Christ, his substitutionary death on the cross, his bodily resurrection, his bodily second coming. Listen, if a person doesn't agree with them on those things, they can't be a Christian because that's a part of the gospel. And so if anyone ever gets up and says, uh, one of our pastors says, hey, I'm not totally sure that Jesus bodily rose from the dead, you should fire them. And I would prefer that that be you, not me, all right? I just want to say that. Because we, we have to agree on those things. The gospel's at stake, so there's essential things. Secondly, there's important things, but non-saving truth or non-gospel uh, truth. Uh, the, the timing of Christ's return would, would be one of those. The age of the earth uh, would be one of those. The role of women in church, that's one of those. It's important, but it's not, the, the gospel's not dismantled if we disagree. And then there's things that we just call interesting but not essential. Like, like when the Bible talks about the sons of men in Genesis chapter 6, do you think that was really giants or you think that was angels? Or like, I don't know. And what, I don't, Does it make any difference Like, and how you love your wife and all those kind of things? No, but do you wonder? And so there are things that are there, you know, who do you think the, the, the pale horse in Revelation, when it says pale, do you think that means white or is it off white? What, I, I don't know. Like get a hobby. I don't know, all right? And so Jesus makes a call for the sake of unity for our gospel witness uh, two times. Uh, verse 21, uh, he prays that we may be one so that the world may believe that you sent me. Did you understand that? He's saying, hey, listen, I'm praying for unity so that the world will believe that you sent me. Because disunity discredits the message. And then he prays again in verse 23, so that the world may know uh, that you sent me. So, so how does that happen in a church? A lot of different backgrounds in here, a lot of different you know, theological perspectives, a lot of different culture, a lot of, a lot of kind of things. Listen, uh, even sprinkling amongst us, there's some weirdos in here, all right? I just want to say that, all right? So how do you achieve unity amongst all this diversity in a church of nearly a 1,000 people? How does that happen? Here, write these things down. Here's where unity happens. Number one, there's a common love. What's that love for? A common love for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And urging the Philippians church toward unity, Paul put it like this in Philippians 1. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. And so there's a common love for the gospel that keeps us unified. Secondly, there's a common purpose. We all have differing gifts, but Corinthians 10.31 says all those gifts are all for the glory of God. So the common purpose is the glory of God. Common love for the gospel, a common purpose in the glory of God. And third, there's a common mission, to make disciples for Jesus Christ. And yes, we may disagree on the timing of the Lord's return and the doctrine of election and the age of the earth and role of women and baptism and, and all these kinds of things. But listen, there's a common love for the gospel and there's a common uh, mission together and there's a common motive, which is the glory of God. And if we'll keep our eyes on those three things, we'll be just fine and the world will believe our witness. That's what he's praying for on our behalf. And so... Why did you say that we should selfishness? Pray that God would guard our hearts from selfishness. Because that's the root of all conflict in every church. I coached one guy and he's in this contentious church. And just every change they made was like, I mean, just 
every change, just fireworks, every little change. It wasn't, wasn't a doctrinal thing. It wasn't, wasn't like someone got up and said, hey, I deny the Bible's true. Like, like this, we don't do it this way. We don't do it that way. We've never done it that way, those kind of things. And he said, just so discouraged. <laughs> and he said, I'm thinking about changing the name of our church. It was First Baptist. I can't remember what the name is. And he said, I'm thinking about changing the name of our church. I said, what are you going to call it? He said, Burger King Church. I said, what? He said, because everybody wants to have it their way, praise God, right? I was like, I vote amen. I say amen to that, right? And so where does all this disunity come from in churches? Listen, where it always comes from, right here. My own selfish heart. That's not, that's not my advice. Listen to Scripture. James 4, what is it that calls quarrels and fights among you? Now, what we're thinking is, it's because that dumb thing that person did, right? It's because the dumb thing that the church did, dumb thing, what a fill in the blank. Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You'll do whatever it takes to get what you want. You're jealous of what others have, but you can't get it. So you fight and wage war to take it away from them. Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. And even when you do ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You only want what will give you pleasure. Listen, the source of all disunity in every church, if it's not theological, it's selfishness. It's selfishness. And here's what I believe. I believe we're just seeing the tip of the iceberg of what God wants to do through our church. Not just in Liberty Township, but I mean all over the world. As we send more and more people out and mission trips and partnerships and all kinds of things. And things are as unified here as probably they've ever been. And so we are ripe for the enemy. And so here's my prayer challenge to you as we close this morning. Real simple. You don't have to write it down. You can memorize it. More of him, less of me. More of him, less of me, so that they may believe that he sent us. Would you bow your heads this morning? With your head bowed this morning, I just want to ask you, honest before God, knowing that Jesus prayed on your behalf, that the values of a godless culture would not creep into your heart. Honest before God, would you just say, Lord, that's happened to me. And I confess it this morning. If that's you this morning and you just feel in conviction that, that the values of the world around you have crept into your heart and you long for things that God doesn't long for in your life, would you just confess that before God? Would you just agree with God about your sin? And would you make a commitment today to turn away from that sin, to repent of that, and turn towards the Father in faith, believing that he has good things for you, that he has satisfying things for you, that he has joy for you? Would you do that this morning? What about this? Maybe you realize that Jesus has called us to reach the world. Maybe you also realize that at times, your church and your family, your own selfishness has gotten in the way. And it's become a source of disunity. And you realize today, it discredits our message. 
according to the prayer of our Lord. And so if you're here this morning, would you just pray a simple prayer this morning? Would you just say, Lord, your kingdom agenda is more important than what I want. Your glory is far more important than my agenda. And so, Lord, right now I'm praying more of you, less of me so that they may believe that the Father has sent us. God, we're grateful this morning for the incredible work you've done in our church in the last eight, nine years. We're, we're, we're humbled that you've allowed us to be a part of it. Lord, we put all that glory at your feet. But Lord, we also recognize that when things are going so well, it's easy to let our guard down. It's easy to pick on petty things. It's easy to to engage the world and let its values creep in. God, it's easy to do all those things. So, Lord, I pray that what's on your heart for us in John 17 is on our, our hearts this week. And that, God, our witness and our mission to the world would not be hindered by worldliness or by selfishness. So your glory can be displayed through us. We pray that in Christ's name. Amen.